Good morning. It's great to see you all again. And as we begin, I just wanted to thank Christy Fields and Sarah Arthurs for teaching us the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. They both worked more than we can probably imagine to prepare. They were both faithful to the word, faithful in their study and their presentation. And they're just blessed by both of them and how they use their gifts to serve the church and to minister in the church. So just a thankfulness for them. And I'm thankful to be back with you guys again this week as we are looking at the beginning of Acts and the founding of the church. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for each of the women who are here today. And I know that many are missing because of illness, and I just pray that you would heal them and their families, that you, I, I know that's been a virus going through um, a lot of the kids in the church, and that you would heal them and help them to get better. I thank you today for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your word, and I pray that we would go um, ever deeper in it, ever deeper in understanding, so that our devotion for you would grow and increase, and that our love for you would, and that we would reach the lost. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son. Please bless all that we are doing today. Amen. Well, every lecture, I honestly, it's, it's, I'm always, um, find myself incredibly dependent on the Lord. I'm always humbled. Uh, but this week took the cake. Every time, you know, sometimes I hit them like, oh, that's bottom. This one was, this was my hardest week in preparing. And so I want to just give maybe more than unusual credit <laughs> to the godly men who I learned from. In fact, on Monday night, I called my best friend in California, and I'm like, I'm not going to have a lecture Wednesday. And her husband's a professor at the university, at, at the Master's University in California, and he taught me, he spent 30 minutes and taught me Acts 1 and 2. So thank you for Paul Twist. At any point, I could stop on my lecture and say, I learned this from Paul. Um, not the apostle, but the professor, Paul. And um, though I learned it, I guess, from both of them. I'm also really thankful for Dr. Abner Chow. He taught the cl a class on Acts, and he put it online, and I was able to listen to a lot of that. And also another professor who's a friend of ours, um, Todd Bolin, and he's done a, a redemptive history study like this. And so between those three men, <laughs> I am able to have a lecture today. Um, and just just reminded me, because today is also, if you don't know, the 501st anniversary of the Reformation. And it just reminded me that we all have received so much, right? The Corinthians says that what do you have that you have not received? And we stand here today as recipients of men who said, we are going to make the Bible available to people in their language, and we are not going to have the extra teaching of the Catholic Church. We're going to have sola scriptura, right? We're going to believe in the word of God alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And we are really here today because, spiritually speaking, of those men and their faithfulness to God. And so we're always in a line, standing, um, standing in the line. Even, even today we're going to see in Acts, like we are in the line of those men, the faithful men who have passed the word to other faithful men who have taught the word to other faithful And it, it's just a long line that we are all the recipients of. And then also one more little housekeeping thing before we start. Um, if you have your calendars, you can look. We're going to have a little different format in our study going forward. So far in our study, we've really looked at one book at a time. Sometimes we've spent multiple weeks there, but we've always just taken one book at a time. But when this study was being planned, the writers really wanted everyone to understand how the epistles fit into redemptive history. And they didn't want that connection to be lost. So when we come back from the break, you'll notice if you look at January 9, we're going to have, I think it's Acts 13 through 15 and Galatians. Because that's what's, what it, Acts 13 and through 15 is what's happening in redemptive history when the book of Galatians is written. So it'll help you understand this is what's happening. This is why Galatians, this is why they wrote Galatians. This is what's happening in the, the greater Christian world and why they felt like this letter had to be written addressing these issues. And so Acts overlaps with most of the apostles, and you're going to see that that's going to be the pattern. Sometimes a section of Acts overlaps with multiple books. So, for example, Romans doesn't have Acts and Romans together, but it will still, the last section of Acts we covered will still cover Romans, if that makes sense. So I just want to explain that so there's not confusion as you're like, why did we do part of Acts and then part of Galatians? There's a, there's a logic behind it. 
And so with that, we, I'm going to spend a little time, and I just also wanted to preface this, extra time on the introduction today. So I don't want you to get to the end. When I finish the introduction, to go, oh, we're going to be here till tonight. No, we're not. We're spending extra time on the introduction on purpose. And there's a reason for that. Again, I learned in my study this week that most of the books in the Bible, there are a few exceptions, but for most of them, if you understand the theology that is laid out in the introductory chapters, then you'll have a proper reading of the rest of the book that the rest of the book really fleshes out. You can almost think of it like a paper with a thesis statement, right? The, the thesis statement is going to direct everything about the paper, and everything in the paper should go back to the thesis statement. And so if we understand the theology that's in the introductory material of any book, then we should re have a proper reading of the book. So I really want to lay a foundation for where we're going in the book of Acts. And to show you how important this was, Abner Chow, who I told you I listened to his class, he, his class is an hour and a half long on Tuesday, Thursdays, when he gets to his eighth lecture, so however many hours that is, he's only finished Acts 1, because that's how much time he spent laying on the foundation. So I'm really giving you a high overview of the foundation, but I'm still trying to hit the high points. The book of Acts has received a lot more attention in the past 200 years in scholarship, which for biblical scholarship is recent. <laughs> and the reason of this, the reason for this has been one, because of the, the rise of the charismatic movement, and the second reason for that has been the modern missions movement. And while the modern mission, missions is a wonderful thing, there's a sad reason, actually, and a, a kind of a doctrinal error that has brought this about. And that is that many people view the book of Acts as normative. And so the first thing I want us to know in our introductory material is that the book of Acts, and even narrative sections of scripture, are not normative. What do I mean about that? Paul Twist says, a simple rule for narrative is to say narrative is not normative. Just because we read something in the narrative portion of scripture does not in any way mean it is an imperative or a command or an expected norm for our daily lives. Rather, a good rule of thumb is to seek to find what we read in the narrative in didactic form elsewhere in the Bible. For example, a New Testament epistle. And if there it is given as a command to the church, we can then with some degree of certainty take the example in the narrative as the anticipated norm of the Christian life. Just read part of that again. He says, just because we read something in the narrative portion of scripture does not in any way mean it is an imperative or a command or an expected norm for our daily lives. It has to be commanded elsewhere in scripture for us to see and learn that the narrative is teaching that. Dr. Chow is also helpful in this point when he says, Acts is an account of what historically happened. Acts is not a promise. So what does that mean practically? He says, again, narrative text versus propositional teaching. So again, the epistles would be propositional teaching where it's saying, walk in the spirit or um, bear the fruits of the spirit. You know, it, these direct commands, do not lie, um, be careful with your speech. That would be more propositional teaching. So they make different assertions, narrative and propositional. And so one of the problems with narrative and saying that narrative is a promise is where do you draw the boundary? So this is where I found this point most clarifying. For example, if Acts is a promise, if Acts is a normative, then when we lie, we should be struck dead like Ananias and Sapphira. If Acts is normative, if Acts is a promise, then there's a time when, I believe it's Paul is preaching, we're going to get there later in Acts, and a boy falls out of a window and dies. We should be able to raise that child from the dead, right? Because Acts is a promise. If Acts is a promise, then when we're converted, and this gets a little bit complicated, right here at the beginning of Acts and Pentecost, do we, when we get converted, how did the Holy Spirit come upon us? In tongues of flames of fire? Later in Acts, some people get converted and then the Holy Spirit comes later. And there's always a theological truth that's being proven, but if Acts is normative, then how do we understand conversion? So this is a history, and, if you, and again, people like the Amish do this. They take a culture and, they, and a specific time period and they normalize it and say this is what's biblical. So if we're going to normalize Acts, why aren't we living like second century Jews? Right? Where do you draw the line? 
And that's one of the reasons why we have to say that Acts isn't normative, and that's where you get a lot of, of movements that aren't biblical, because they'll be like, the early church did this, but it doesn't mean that that's normative for the church or exactly how it should look. So I know that that spent a lot of time on that, but that was the thing. You know, you listen, you read different authors, you listen to different people, and they all hit different interviews. All of them hit this. <laughs> this was the big thing that they wanted people to understand. Acts is not normative. So that's the first point in our overview. The second point in our overview is that Acts is a book of transitions. And so you're going to see an overlap. You're going to see an o we're transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're transitioning from Israel to the church. And so as we see these transitions, there's going to be some overlap for a period, and there's also going to be heightened kingdom activity because of this transition. And again, that doesn't mean it's normative for our life. You can see examples of this in the Old Testament. In times where God's moving redemptive history forward in specific ways, he did great miracles, like with Moses and Elijah and Elisha. But actually, miracles are kind of the exception in Old Testament history. It's not normative, right? So, so some of these things that are happening in the kingdom right now are not normative for our lives. So... But Acts is a book of transitions, Acts is not normative, and then the third point for the overview is I'm going to give you a summary statement for the book of Acts, and I have this statement from Daryl Bach, who wrote the book A Theology of Luke and Acts, and that statement is that God's promised program is realized for all nations. So as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see that God's promised program is realized for all nations. Acts is also have great theology to learn, so some of the things we need to know about the theology of the book of Acts well, the first thing we need to know is Acts is really a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, right? So if we look with me in verse 1, it says, In the first book, Luke is referring to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in this time period, when you wrote like a second volume, you view this as a second volume of what he's writing, if you didn't state a second purpose statement, you didn't give a new thesis, then the purpose statement of your first book is the purpose statement of your second book. Luke does not give a second purpose statement, so if you flip back to, to Luke, um, in, in the person Luke, in the Gospel of Acts, doesn't give a second purpose statement. So if you flip to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, you read his purpose statement, where he says that he's trying to write down and deliver, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right? So he's trying to show that what Jesus has began and done and what you've been taught is going to continue in the church age. And so there's this very tight continuity from Luke into the book of Acts. Um, again, Paul Twist says that Luke is always, and this is Luke the person in writing Acts, is always seeking to demonstrate that what is happening in Acts in the narrative is exactly what God promised would happen. There's uh, tons of over t Old Testament quotations and overlap into the book of Acts because Luke is trying to say that everything God said is going to happen has to happen exactly that way. He's showing that, just like he was in the Gospel of Luke. Acts is structured. It's a very easy book to outline. If you look in verse 8, he tells, it's, it's got a geographical stru structure. And in verse 8, Jesus tells them he's in, that the disciples are going to be his witnesses, the apostles are going to be his witnesses to the first in chapters 1 and 2, you have the foundation of the church. But then they're going to be his witnesses, chapters 3 through 7 to Jerusalem. He said you're going to be witnesses to Jerusalem. And then you're going to be witnesses to Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 through 12. And then you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's chapters 13 through 28. So then chapters 1 and 2, the church is established. In chapters 3 through, through 7, we, are, we see there a witness in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, a witness to Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 through 28, a witness to the ends of the earth. That's how this book's outlined and structured. And it just comes straight out of verse 8 of chapter 1. So with all of that introduction, turn with me to chapter 1. And we are going to look at Christ's 
ascension and commissioning of disciples, I guess you could say. So chapter one, we're going to read verses one through three. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there are three things I want us to notice in this introduction. There's a lot that's packed into here, and the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is the main character of the book of Acts. You know, sometimes you hear that it's Peter and Paul, and sometimes you hear it's the Holy Spirit. But right here we see that we're beginning with what, and there is debate among scholars with this, but I think this, this text really shows Jesus, we're going to deal with what Jesus began to do and teach, and then he's going to continue. He hasn't finished. It's not done. Jesus is continuing his works. And then if you would look, who is the one who sends the Holy Spirit? Jesus is the one sending the Spirit, right? Since he's leaving here. And who commands? Jesus commands through the Holy Spirit. So the one giving the commands through the Holy Spirit is Jesus. So Jesus is, through the Holy Spirit and the apostles, is working on earth. So the apostles in the church are his agents that are doing his work, but he is the one commanding. He is the one sending the Spirit who is enabling. So it's, it all goes back to and finds its source in what Jesus is doing on earth through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and the church. And so we're going to see over and over again through the text how it is Christ who is working. The second thing that we need to notice is the resurrection is what is stressed by Jesus, right? He said that he, um, verse 2, he presented himself alive after the, his sufferings by many proofs and that he appeared to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And we as a church so often focus on the cross, which is good and is right. But if we focus on the cross through the neglect of the resurrection, we have done a great disservice. And if you think about it, there is no point to the cross without the resurrection. You know, Paul says without the resurrection, we are most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, the cross accomplishes nothing. Without the resurrection, Jesus is a dead man, right? And we have no hope, and we have no future, and so we cannot focus on the cross to the detriment of the resurrection. And the resurrection, one, validates the work on the cross, and secondly, we're going to see that the resurrection, again, quoting from Paul Twist, the resurrection is the driving force and engine for the early church. What we will see in Acts and the epistles is just how much the apostles leaned upon the resurrection as their proof or as the foundation from which they seek to move redemptive history forward. So I just want us to even just kind of have in the back of your mind as you're reading for the rest of our study, every time you come across resurrection, make note of it. Make note of how they're using it in their arguments, in their witnessing, as the foundation to move redemptive history forward. Note the resurrection. Pay attention to how foundational it is. It is the engine that is the driving force moving the early church. And the third thing I want us to notice is that the resurrection and the kingdom are connected. He presented himself alive, and he taught them about the kingdom. And this goes right back to Old Testament theology. In Ezekiel 37 and Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26, all these passages, and there are more, but they look forward to the resurrection of the saints. I'm just going to read from you in Daniel chapter 12, um, starting in verse 2. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever many passages like this that anticipate that there's going to be a resurrection. And in all of these, the paradigm is resurrection, then kingdom, right? Following this resurrection is the kingdom. And so it's very logical now. Jesus has been resurrected. So what are the disciples going to ask? Before we get there, I want you to note verse 5. 
in verse 5, um, we'll restart in verse 4. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's the linchpin and the connection between Jesus' ministry and passing on the disciples. The Holy Spirit is going to come. The third person of the Trinity is going to come. He's going to be with you, and he's going to empower them for the work that Christ wants the church and the apostles to do. So this is the transition that connects Jesus' ministries with the apostles' ministry. And then they ask the question, because again, resurrection, resurrection then means the kingdom. What do the disciples say? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a logical question at this point. And what does he say? He said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see the disciples are asking, and Todd Bowen, Dr. Bowen says, that this, speaking of the disciples, that they had not been disabused of the Old Testament teaching that God would fulfill his promises to Israel through the establishment of a righteous kingdom on earth. More importantly, Jesus did not rebuke them for having a wrong expectation. He could have denied their expectations and reprimanded them for anticipating a literal fulfillment of the prophecies. Instead, he told them that they could not know the timing and that the Spirit would come so that they would be Jesus' witnesses to the world. And then in verse 8, we find the purpose statement in the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we need to see that, that there is still, it is still, the kingdom is still coming. There's still an expectation of the kingdom. Christ is not saying, oh, there's no kingdom or you misunderstood. The kingdom is still coming. But he says, you're still waiting for it, and here's your job while you wait. You're to be my witnesses. All the way to the end of the earth. And that phrase, the end of the earth, can be traced all the way back to Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, that's one of the servant songs in Isaiah we looked at, and it's talking about the suffering servant. And what we see, and again, many scholars all make this connection, what we see is that there is a strong connection between the ministry of the suffering servant and the apostles. And Paul and Peter clearly understand this. They know that they are now picking up the ministry of the suffering servant, and they are now living out that ministry. Jesus having now ascended to heaven, they're taking his mantle, and they go forth as servants in that line. And eventually, the suffering servant ministry is passed on to the apostles and to, to the apostles' disciples, which now would be, in one sense, all of us. A, a, clear, a clear way to see this, turn with me to Acts 13. In Acts 13, and we'll start in verse, mm, I think, 46. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching, and, and it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you have thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a direct quote from Psalm 50, um, 49, sorry, Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, the suffering servant, who was the light to the Gentiles, is who? Jesus, the Messiah. And then when you get to Luke, and Jesus is presented at the temple, Simeon comes out and says, right, that Jesus is what? The light to the Gentiles. So how can a prophecy that is very clearly about Jesus be said to be commanded to Paul and Barnabas? This is the close connection between the church as the body of Christ and Christ. This is how we see that they are literally saying, this is how they're taking up his mantle. What does Jesus say to, we're going to jump in ahead in the story, but I think you're all familiar with it. When Paul, Saul is converted to Paul, what does Jesus say to him on the road of Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
right? Because Paul's going out and attacking who? The church. And again, when we get to Corinthians, uh, kind of flipping it a little different example, when you get to Corinthians, they are rebuked. Why? Because of their sexual morality. And what does Paul say? You're joining Christ to a harlot. Now, we know Christ doesn't sin, but again, the closeness of the connection between how we sin and we are in the body of Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, right? We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So do you see the closeness of that connection and how that is playing out, that they're taking up this mantle and they're continuing that line? I'm not saying that they are Christ. I'm not saying that Christ sinned. That's not what Paul is saying, but that they are continuing the ministry of the suffering servant. And that has some application for us in our life. If you think about it, if we are continuing in the line of the apostles, which all believers should be, right? We're all their disciples studying their, the word of God. Then it is normative for the Christian life that we would continue the ministry of the suffering servant. And what does that mean? It's a ministry that denies oneself for the sake of the advancement of the gospel to reach the lost. So we have a ministry as a church to deny ourselves to reach the lost. And that's just, I mean, do you see that theme over and over again? We saw it in Matthew, to follow Christ, you have to take up your cross and deny yourself. And we saw it in all of the Gospels. And here is a slightly different nuance to that, because that was, it's the same truth, but we were following Christ. This is what you do to follow Christ, enter the kingdom, deny yourself. And here's another purpose. You're reaching the lost so that there are more in the kingdom, and denying yourself and continuing this ministry, right? Because now he's talking to believers. Now these are people who are in um, the kingdom. And then Jesus ascends, he goes in heaven in verses 11 and 12, and then that brings us to the choosing of Matthias. And just again, we're going to talk about this briefly, but why did Judas even have to be replaced? Why couldn't they have just continued as 11? Again, remember, this is a book of transitions, so we're going from the old to the new, there's overlap. And so the disciples represented the 12 tribes. We're not the 11 tribes. And so we are going to have another who represents the 12 tribes as we're transitioning, because they're representing Israel. And... It's also very key, again, how important is resurrection? Look in verse two, because as they're picking one, they have to pick one who beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his what? His resurrection, okay? So you have to have one who's a witness to his resurrection. And in Acts, um, again, scholars say that Acts, that term witness in Acts is a technical term only really used in relationship to the apostles. So we use it more casually, like I'm going to go be a witness in court. This was specific to the apostles because they were the ones who witnessed the resurrection. And it's emphasizing the importance of the resurrection. And we're going to see in the rest of Acts that it is the apostles who are going to carry the weight of, of the beginning of the ministry. And they're in charge because they are the witnesses to the resurrection. And the resurrection is the foundation upon which the theology of the book of Acts is played out. Okay? So we're seeing some continuity with Israel to the church. And then pretty soon we're going to see that there's going to be a big change in discontinuity because we're transitioning. And that brings us to chapter 2 and to Pentecost. And let's just read verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you were, things if you grew up in church, sometimes there are things you don't think about, especially because we're not little Jewish children and growing up in synagogues, and I just thought that when the Holy Spirit came, we named that Pentecost. But Pentecost, as we saw in our lesson, was actually a feast. <laughs> it was the feast of first weeks. It was always celebrated 50 days after Passover, and it is also the celebration of the first fruits. And it is one of the three feasts that people were required to come back to Jerusalem for. So this is a significant, significant event because 
And Jesus' timing is intentional and perfect, just like he died on Passover because he's the Passover lamb. He is anointing the church because they are going to be the first fruits of the new creation. They are, we're pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. And so what just that this is a celebration of the first fruits, so that it was also a celebration of the giving of the law, right? And so here we have God doing something new, and he's doing it on Pentecost, and he's doing it intentionally. And also, we're going to see, as we get a little, we're going to spend some more time in verses 1 through 4, but when we get to after the, they're dwelt by the Holy Spirit, because so many people had to come to Jerusalem, they have an international audience when they come out and proclaim the gospel. So all the things that God does, all the timing, all the details, are so perfectly laid out in his plan, and it just shows us how wise and how powerful our God is. You know, sometimes I have a hard time making my dinner plans happen, right? And he has made all of this happen over thousands of years down to the last detail. So then we're going to see in verse 2, okay? So there is a sound and a wind, right? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This word for wind is a very unique word in, in a very rare word in the original text. It is not used very often, and the main place it is used is in Genesis 2. So there's a direct connection here to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, it is used when it says that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, and he breathed in him the breath of life. And so we see this picture here where Adam is, is dust. He has no life in him. And God breathes in him life, and he makes a new man, and he makes him alive. And then what is Luke's big emphasis all throughout the Gospel of Luke carried into Acts? That who is Jesus? He is the second Adam. And in Adam, all men die, right? And so the world is really dead. But Jesus is coming, and he's starting something new. And he is bringing to the apostles true spiritual life. This is the new covenant, right? So the, the, this word that ties you to, he is, he's in, they're going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is happening. There is new, now spiritual birth. What he talked to Nicodemus about in John 3, it is happening. And so the evidence that everything is changing is the spiritual birth that they are experiencing here, that they are now new men, that we are now truly alive for the first time. Remember Ezekiel in the new covenant, he said that you had a heart of stone. Well, people who have a heart of stone aren't alive, right? <laughs> stone can't get, but I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And so we see, with, and, it, and it's further developed, this idea that he's giving spiritual life, because there's two things that happen. There's the sound, which means they can hear, and then there's the sight. They see the tongue, so they can hear and they can see. And there's so many connections to Isaiah 6, and we're going to go through them, but one of the first ones is, when Isaiah is commissioned for his ministry, and we see this throughout the whole Old Testament, if you were with us last year, what does he say? You're going to go be a minister to a people who are always blind and always deaf, right? You're going to go be a prophet to a spiritually blind and deaf people. But now Jesus is bringing spiritual life. They can hear and they can see. He is changing everything. So we see that, that Jesus is, is moving us into a new era. In redemptive history, he is starting something new. He's starting the church, and he's starting it with new life. And the church is going to be the first fruits of creation. And Jesus is actually the first fruit of the church, right? So the first of the first is Jesus. And we see what's going to happen to us is we're all going to have a resurrected body. What does he have when he comes back from the grave and he's the first fruits? He has a resurrected body showing us what we are going to have. So the, the church is a new community of people, and it testifies to creation. And the church is very eschatological in its behavior and thinking. That means we look forward when I say we're eschatological because we are looking to an age to which we really belong. We really belong to the new heavens and new earth. We're strangers and aliens in this world, right? And so we're always pointing forward to that to which we belong. 
And again, I said there's more allusions to Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel. So again, many scholars see that in the prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah's call, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, um, and I'm not going to go through all the proofs because we don't have time, um, but there's this connection, and there's two things between the prophets and the, the beginning of the church that they deduce from this. One is that redemptive history, just as God moved redemptive history forward through the prophets, now he's moving it forward through the apostles. And the second thing that they deduce is that just like Ezekiel and Isaiah um, represented the Lord, right, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God, Jesus is now acting through the church to represent him. The church is, represents him in an incarnate way. We should be the visual manifestation of God's presence on earth today, right? He indwells us, and the church should be the visual manifestation of God's presence on earth today. So, that, so with that, that's the wind, and that's the sound. So why the tongues? Why the fire? Well, there's two things we see with that. One is the tongues represent language. And again, I think I just grew up thinking, oh, it's nice that God explained to us why there are languages in Bible. Just, you know, a little kid, simple understanding. But Babel is a sign of significant judgment. It is actually a hindrance to how the gospel would advance. And now we see all these tongues representing languages are coming together in one place, and God is going to reverse. This is an anti-Babel. He's going to reverse what he did at Babel, and he's going to make it so that the language is no longer a hindrance to the gospel. And they're going to go out, and they're going to speak in languages to all the people who are there and present the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we see how God is going, it, it, this is initial, this isn't complete, right? This is, we're seeing, this is, there's this period of transition, and this is the initial showing of what the church and what God will fully do in the end. And so he is showing that he can reverse Babel, that he, the gospel is going to advance to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And the fire also reminds us, remember John said the kingdom was going to come when we baptized with fire. And so there's a connection, the believers will have a refiner's fire, but unbelievers will have a judgment. And then that brings us to the speech in Acts 2, sermon, Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And Peter quotes from Joel, and he says, In the last days, because they come out and they speak and tell, tell everyone the gospel in their language, and they're like, these men must be drunk. Like, they, they don't understand what's happening. So Peter explains, and he uses Joel to explain. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days... I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. So what we're seeing here is that Joel is speaking about the latter days, or the day of the Lord. And what we have to understand, so that we interpret this rightly, is the latter days, and the minor prophets make this very clear, again, going back to last year's study, is that this is an extended period of time in redemptive history. It's not a single event, right? This is an era, Okay. And so what Peter is saying is the era has begun. Well, here we are 2,000 plus years later. You see how large this era is. So he's not saying that everything in here is happening right now, and he's not using fulfillment language. He, he's not saying this is all fulfilled. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all people. And, and really, again, we know that not every single person on the planet has the Holy Spirit. We're transitioning from the Old Covenant Israel to the New Covenant. Right? So in Israel, you had people in Israel who believed God and people in Israel who didn't. But you were born <laughs> in the line of Abraham. You're in, the tri you're in the nation of Israel, right? Now we are transitioning to a people who are all regenerate. You may attend church, but you're only part of the church if you're regenerate, right? And so now we have a body where everyone is going to believe, and God's spirit is given to all believers. Transition. This is the discontinuity between the old and the new. We're transitioning to a new kingdom. And this kingdom, sorry, the, new, the church, and this kingdom, ex the church, exists in this era, the latter days. And in the latter days, we are going to see that Israel, for a season, is set aside. 
It's judgment on Israel. It is a season. They're going to be brought back. We're going to see them as the major player in the book of Revelation. But, or one of them, I should say. Um, but for now, they're set aside. And the church is going to be moving redemptive history forward for the, this period right now. Um, sorry, I'm just making sure I'm not forgetting anything. Um, so then looking at this, we're gonna, there's, I'm just going to give you an overview right now of some things that we're going to see in every single speech in Acts. There are many speeches in Acts. And in all of them, there are four things that hold true. The first thing is that they all proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of them. The second thing is they all proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the offer of the Holy Spirit. Third, they all present the requirement of repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Right? And they draw significantly forth on the Old Testament to make their case. So I'm just going to repeat those again for those of you taking notes. They all proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They all proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the offer of the Holy Spirit. They all require repentance and faith, right? And they all draw significantly on the Old Testament to make their case. And there again is an application for us. I know I, I don't know if you do this, but I can sometimes make evangelism way more complicated than it is. And here it is. We present the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Repent and believe, and he offers you the Holy Spirit. If this is how the apostles could advance the gospel... <laughs> is how we can witness to people. Very practical. And I, sometimes I think I have to, like, con I, I really fall into trap. I have to convince them. <laughs> I have to convince them. I have to present it in a way that's convincing so that, and that's not our job, right? And then if you go and you'll read with me in verse 42, we see that we now have a new community, the church. And we see, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Those are the four things, even today, the church is supposed to be marked by. This is what, and we saw this in the lesson. We looked at verses on all of these things. This is what the church is supposed to be about, teaching. And this is one, I think, I, I have, this is me, I haven't researched this, but I think teaching and fellowship are the two things most under attack. Even unbelievers find some value in a prayer life or a spirit, right? And everyone likes fellowship, and even, you know, the Catholic Church does communion. I mean, they do it wrong, but those things aren't attacked the same way that people want a seeker-friendly movement. They don't, they want to have their ears tickled. They don't want to have to go through the hard passages of scripture. They don't want to feel conviction of sin. There was a really tragic, very recent survey done by Legionnaire Ministries of the state of the evangelical church and what they believe. And most people who claim to believe what we believe don't actually <laughs> believe the Bible is what it says. And they, they claim they believe the Bible, but they don't know what it teaches, and they think things like, oh, good people can go to heaven. So it, most people want to have their ears tickled but we are supposed to be devoting ourselves to teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and, we and to the communion, to breaking bread. And then we get distracted from those things and do other things. They can be good things. They can be ways that we are man we're, we're manifesting fellowship, but if we let them take priority over the reason we're doing it, then it's wrong, right? So that's what the church is about. As we come to the end of chapter 2, this is a chapter that, again, often in the greater world has a lot of misinterpretations. And I just want to note a few things that the passage does not say. Again, Todd Bolin is really helpful here. He says, it's worth noting what the passage does not say. It does not say that the kingdom is now established. It does not say that Jesus is now ruling as king. It does not say that any or all of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in the church. One reason Peter quotes scripture is to explain that Jesus is now at God's right hand, waiting for the establishment of the kingdom. Jesus' status is similar to that of King David during the years that Saul was king. He had been anointed, but he awaits his coronation. He has the right to rule, but he has not yet been given the authority. And Hebrews say that Jesus is waiting until God has put all the enemies under his feet to come back and inaugurate the kingdom. And that brings us to chapter 3, Repentance and Faith. 
And we see again, there's a lame man. Do you guys all have that song from Sunday school about the lame man? I, I'm not going to sing it for you, but it, it, I, I can't ever hear the story and not think about it. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. All right. Um, so the lame man is healed, and all the people think that who did it? They think Peter and James and John, excuse me, did it. And so if you look down, he says, read with me in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy Spirit and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see. And know that faith... And know the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Who is doing the work of Acts? Jesus is doing it. And how is Jesus doing it? Because Jesus was what? He was resurrected. And then Peter goes on and he says, you know what really matters isn't our physical healing, it's our spiritual healing. So Jesus is alive and Jesus has power and Jesus is, is the one that Moses and the prophets pointed to. And so what do you need to do? You need to repent so you'd be forgiven. And what will happen if you repent? He says, Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And then in verse 22, he, says, he mentions Moses, how Moses said he would raise up a prophet for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. And, and, he, and he goes on to argue that this is, Jesus is the one. He's the one the prophets had pointed to. So now you need spiritual healing. You need to repent and believe. So we see that Jesus is going to remain in heaven until the time for the kingdom. And when he comes back, which is, we're in the latter days. If you want to know what the next thing that's supposed to happen in the latter days is, it's Christ's return. He's going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom. And he is in heaven now, working on earth through the church to accomplish his pur pur purposes through the Holy Spirit who enables us and gives us the power to do it. So as we conclude, I just want us to see how Luke has set up that Jesus came to change the world as a second Adam. And we see that through his resurrection, that is exactly what Christ has accomplished. And now he's going to continue that work. And I also want you to see that theology isn't something that's just conceptual. Con theology is something that happens. It's a concept, right, that we can be forgiven of our sins. But we can't be forgiven without a death on a cross and a resurrection. Theology is something we know, but it's always also something that happens. And so we know that Jesus is going to return, but it's also going to happen right? It's not just conceptual, and through all scriptures that way, it's both and. It is a concept, and it's also an action. It's going to be a reality. And most of it has happened, but we're going to see much more to be accomplished. And then also, again, quoting Dr. Chow here, he says, the church is a hope-giving institution. The church is the initial evidence of something greater to come. That's what hope is, having confidence in the current time that there is something better to take place. And that is the church's primary function in history. We point out that it, this is not the end, this is not all there is, and this is not how it finishes. There is something in the future. There is something greater. There is the kingdom. And we are a testimony to the nature of that future. And we're supposed to be calling people to repentance so that they will be in the kingdom. We are to be a hope-giving institution, right? And that, and, and he also, Abner also pointed out that we have to understand Acts because Acts gives us the why of what we do. So when we come to the epistles, if we're just doing the things the epistles command without understanding the why, it becomes empty. It just becomes ritual. But if you know why you do it, then it's full of life. Then we can be zealous for the good works the Lord has planned us for. 
And so when we think about the church and why we're involved in church, it's because you are a life-giving, hope-giving institution that is the body of Christ that is what God is using to change the world. Not in a political sense when we're taking over, but where we are transforming lives through sharing the gospel. And, and really, it's the Holy Spirit right through us. He's using us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your resurrection. I have not given it the thought that I need to. I've not given you the praise for it that I should. I have not pondered it like I have the cross. And for that, I'm sorry. And I thank you for this week and how the study has pointed me to the power of your resurrection and the hope that it gives and that it is the motivation for us to give hope to the world that we will be raised, that we will reign with you, and that that's how life will be for thousands and millions and billions of years forever that this is literally such a short time for the joy that you will give us. And pray that we would be people who go deeper in our devotion of you and our understanding of the word and the content of your word, because only through going deeper can we have greater devotion. And I pray that you would work this in all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.